Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. What a beautiful snow to wake up to. Thankful that we can enjoy it and still come to church this morning with no problems. And so we're grateful for that. <clears throat> Just want to reiterate what Pastor Ray was able to share this morning. We want to encourage you to get connected to church, and, and relationships are a really big part of that. And so if you're new or disconnected, uh, community groups are a great way for you to meet with other families, to pray, talk about the sermon, enjoy some dessert. And so we've got community groups that meet all the time, and we would love to get you connected to some of those groups. We've got grow groups that meet, guys and guy, three guys or three girls that meet to confess sin and pray for each other and study God's Word. And those groups meet all throughout the week as well. Uh, but part of being part of the church is the relationships of the church. And so we want to help foster that, get you connected in community, whether it's a community group or grow group or both. So this morning we're in 1 Peter 2. A couple summers ago, uh, we had our family of five decided to have a family movie night, um, which sounds like a, it is a great idea. Figuring out a movie to watch is not always the easiest thing. We have pretty different movie tastes. Uh, our girls, my wife and my daughter, prefer the motivational, light movie. And me and my two boys, we like the action. We like the battle. We want the Watsons to assemble and to go after it. Well, we had, we're having this conversation, trying to pick what movie are we going to all watch together. And this particular night, I think it was last summer, we settled on a Disney movie, a Disney movie we had not seen, the movie Tangled. Really great movie. We really enjoyed it together. It's the story of Rapunzel, this newborn princess to a king and queen, born into royalty with supernatural hair. Yeah, you're, we're talking about Disney movies this morning. And when her hair was discovered by the evil mother Gothel, out of greed and out of wickedness, out of envy, pure evil, she sneaks into the castle, and maybe you know the story, but she takes this baby princess. And for 18 years, she takes Rapunzel into the woods, into a castle, and she won't let her leave. And she raises her, telling her constantly these web of lies. And it is a pretty uh, overwhelming to watch this, this lady, Gothel, Mother Gothel, raise Rapunzel with constant lies. I mean, it is a pretty dark scene in the movie, telling her, I'm your mother. And the world is not safe, and you belong in this castle. You're chubby. You need me. I'm the only one that cares about you. You belong to me, and everyone is out to get you, Rapunzel, and this is where you must stay. And I'm looking out for you because I want to protect you. But then in the movie, through an intervention of a, of a guy, Flynn, lots of other things, but she starts to remember. She remembers who she is, what her background is, that she is the lost princess, that she is the daughter of the king and the queen, and that the castle is not her home. The tower is not her home. 
And she starts to realize, the light comes on and she realized that for all these years, I've been used, I've been abused, and I've been lied to. And near the end of the movie, she sings a song really appropriately called, I See the Light. I just want to read a few lines here to you um, as we get started. All those days, I'm just going to read them, okay? You may be singing them. All those days watching in the windows, all those years outside looking in, all that time never even knowing just how blind I've been, now I'm here blinking in the starlight, now I'm here, suddenly I see. Standing here, it's all so clear. I'm where I'm meant to be. And at last I see the light, it's like the fog is lifted. At last I see the light, it's like the sky is new. And it's warm and it's real and bright and the world has somehow shifted at all at once. Everything looked different, looks different now that I see you. And it is. It's a great movie, and it's a great message, but we can really relate to the story that is told because it is, it is our story, God's rescue of all the people in the world. And it's not a boy named Flynn. It is Christ come, God himself come to rescue us. And we are like Rapunzel, believing the lies, not knowing who we are or where we've come. And Gothel is a whole lot like Satan in this world to blind you and to bind you from who you really were meant to be. And so we can relate to this story because it is, it is the work of Satan today, the blinding work of Satan. And we don't, so many of us don't know who we truly are in Christ, and we're bound by these lies, and we don't see who we really are, that we're God's masterpiece, that we are his precious chosen children. And we've been bound by these lies. And so this morning, what I want to do, I want to look at 1 Peter, and really, this is the message of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, Peter is speaking, he is speaking truth to us. He's speaking light to us, and here's the principle. We have to know who we are, who we really are in Christ, if we're going to be who he wants us to be. We have to know who we are if we're going to do what he wants us to do. And it, this is exactly what Peter is laying out in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. And so let's read it, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump into it. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray together. Father, help us 
all to see who we are in you through Peter's letter to these churches, true to us still today, really see who we are, really believe who we are, so that we can do and be all that you really meant us to be. And so God, I pray that this morning we would be encouraged. I pray for the light of truth to overwhelm us where we have received lies about who we are and what our value is. And I pray, God, that this truth, this light would empower us to pursue you the way you meant us to do. And so, God, we pray that you help us to hear, help us to listen, help us to understand, help us to focus, regardless of what's going on in our lives today or this next week. But God, we pray by your spirit, you would change lives by the truth of your word. Through the power of the Son, we pray. Amen. When you don't know who you really are, you can't be who you were really meant to be. When you don't know who you really are, you can't be who you're really meant to be. And this is, this is the logic that Peter's using. These, these words describe who you are. These words then empower you to do and to be what God's called you to be. So let's start thinking through first, who are you? Peter gives us seven statements of identity. Okay, you go back, you probably saw a few of them. These are you are statements. This is who you are. These aren't statuses that you have to work towards. This isn't something that you have to work to become someday. These aren't hopes for you to kind of trend towards at some point. These are you are statements right now in this chair as you sit and you listen. This is who you are in Christ. If he is your cornerstone, these are statements to take to the bank. You put them on your mirror. Because just like you see your reflection, these statements are truth, just as true as your reflection is to you. And it is, it is vital that if we're going to do what we're supposed to do, that we know who we are in Christ. And so there's seven of them. First, you are a chosen race, verse 9. It's how he begins. You are a chosen race. Now, this is an interesting phrase in that this was used a lot in the Old Testament. And so this was used to describe the nation of Israel. When God chose Israel, the nation, the race, the Jewish people, he describes them often as the chosen people. Deuteronomy 7 speaks to this, verse 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people. And this is, this is a bloodline. He is saying, I've chosen you, your physical pedigree, your Jewishness, your people. This is my people that I've chosen. All Jewish people I have chosen for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. It was not because of you. You were more in number than any other people. Not that you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He's saying in the Old Testament, to be the chosen race was to be physically, ethnically Jewish. But here, Peter's saying, that's not how it is anymore. Your race is not your physical blood like it was in the Old Testament. He's saying, this is a this is a new race. This is a race that supersedes all the physical races. That it's not about being white or black or brown or African or Hispanic or American or Latino. That that's not how that is not the primary identifying factor of who you are. You are a new race. And it is not by your blood but it is by Jesus' blood. And through Jesus' blood, he's created this new group of people, this new race, and he says, I've chosen you. And he's not not diminishing ethnicity. He's just saying that this is no longer the primary identifying factor of your life. I've done something new, and I've done something different, and now all people who have Jesus as their cornerstone, you have a new way of knowing each other. It is this new race of born-again people, and you've been chosen. And this isn't meant to be confusing. A lot of times we can get we can struggle with the idea that God chose us, but all the, the primary piece of what he's trying to communicate is that he came to you with grace and that you didn't choose him, that you weren't able to choose him, and God came to you in grace because you weren't able to come to him. When it talks about God choosing you, it's, a real, it's really a picture of God loving you. And that's what Deuteronomy says. I love the circular argument of God's choosing. If you go back to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, it says, well, I chose you. God says, I chose you because I loved you. Well, why did you love us? Verse 80 says, why did I love you? I loved you because I loved you. I mean, what a, what a gift this is for us. What about, what, this is the greatest thing ever that God has set his love on me. Because he loves me and he wants to make me into a new race, a new people group that changes my life forever. What a gift. What a gift this is that right now we are loved because we are loved and we are put into a new people group, a new race. The second identifying, the second statement of identity, verse 9 you are a royal priesthood. And this is a whole sermon here. This is, a whole, this, is, this is a loaded phrase that we talked about last week. What does it mean to be a priest? That we've been given new purpose, special purpose that we have unadulterated access right now because of the cornerstone that we are priests and we can go to God with, with for no, nothing can stop us through Jesus. But there's so much more here. What does it mean that right now that God has made you a priest? Well, one of the things that we see is that one of the roles of the priest is to intercede on behalf of people. Here is an example of Jesus, the great high priest, doing it in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, so Peter, who we're reading right now, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. We've been made priests. Part of the function of the priest is to pray on behalf of other people. And what Jesus does here with Peter, what does he do? He says, Satan is out to, well, I mean, what a picture this is, to sift you like wheat. We've already talked about Satan is blinding you to who you really are. He's binding you through the, through the lies. He's preventing you from being all that God wants you to be. And now Satan is out to sift you like wheat. And what, is, what does Jesus do as the great high priest on behalf of Peter? Does he give him advice? Does he give him leadership lessons? Does he hit him in the arm and say, come on, Peter, you're gonna be able to do this. What does he do? He brings Peter to the throne to the, of the Father through prayer. He prays for him. As priests, we have the power and the privilege, the ability to pray on behalf of other people. That's what the priests did. And so when we think about our identity as a priest, we just have to stop and think, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Are we praying on behalf of other people that we have the, the access to take other people who are hurting and struggling and sad and depressed and discouraged. Like we have the ability as priests to take them to the throne. Like we, have, we can do that. And this is part of our identity. This is part of our purpose. God made us to do this. And that when we take people, other people to the throne through prayer as priests, what does God do? He heals and changes lives and he comes through and he provides and he cares and he comforts. And so for us, we've got to think, are we living within the identity of who we are in Christ? We are priests. We talked about spiritual sacrifices of praise last week as a priest. Now we're saying we have the purpose and the ability to bring people before him, but not just priests. Look at the, look at the adjective. We are royal priests. Now, this is, this is stunning. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, you didn't have royal priests. You couldn't be kingly and you couldn't be priestly. Those were two different lines. And if you tried, if you were the king and you tried to act as the priest, what, what, what happened to Saul? He got in some trouble, okay? Two different lines. You couldn't be both, but here we're told we are, we are both. We are royal and we are priests. How is that possible? Because of who Christ was. Jesus was the priest from Melchizedek. He was kingly from the line of David. And when we are on the cornerstone of Christ through faith, we get what he gets. We are royal. You are part of the kingly family. You are sons and daughters of the highest king. And so we really are like Rapunzel. She had no idea. But when she did, what happened when she knew all of a sudden, when she knew, that's right, I am royal, I am kingly, I am part of this family. What happened? She was emboldened. She was confident. She was powerful. 
And so for us, we, we've got to know right now that this is who we are. In Christ, we're royal. High school girls, middle school girls, some of you are in here. You are royal in Christ. Like this is your identity right now. And social media and your lousy friends, that's mean, I'm sorry. Your friends that aren't telling you truth can't tell you otherwise. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what people's perception are. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. You are royal right now because of Christ. And what happens is why this, when we believe the lies of the enemy and we don't, we don't look at ourselves like we're royal and we don't believe it, I mean, it is, it is destructive and we see it with teenagers not just our young ladies, our young men. We see it with our adults, our moms and our dads, that when we don't have truth in thinking about who we are, we aren't living how we're meant to live. We are royal priests. There's a scene in Prince Caspian with C.S. Lewis's book where Lucy, the youngest, they're going to war. They're in war and the older siblings are discouraged and on the run. And Lucy has this really deep faith and she sees Aslan. And she goes early one morning and she sees Aslan and Aslan tells her, okay, the lion, the picture of God, Christ. And Aslan tells her to do some really difficult task. And Lucy says, I can't do that. She's supposed to go back and tell her brothers and sisters that she saw Aslan. And that he's here and he's leading us. And she says, I, I can't do that. And, and Aslan talk, looks at her and he, this is what he says to her. Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face, but there must have been some magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. This response of Aslan, now you are a lioness. And now all Narnia will be renewed. I love that. You are a lioness. This is who you are. You are royalty. You are with me. You are for me. You are founded on my cornerstone. Let's keep going. The third identity statement. You are a holy nation. He tells that this is who, this is who you are, Royalty speaks to their dignity. Holiness speaks to their purity. We've talked about the, the need to be holy. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. We'll talk about it more, this, this idea that we have to strive for holiness, but that's not what Peter is saying here. He's saying, you are right now pure and holy because of Christ, because of 1 John 1, 7, that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness because of Acts 15, 9, that our hearts are cleansed by faith. He's saying right now, regardless of how you feel, in Christ, you are holy, set apart, pure, cleansed, and washed. And you're a nation. It's a new nation. It's great to be American, but we're not, we're not, waving our flags in heaven, the American flag. He's saying, you have a new nation and it's not just Americans. And we, 
we love and we're proud to be in America and we're so grateful. But what Peter is saying is there is a new nation and your new nation in the kingdom of God is all of those who stand on the cornerstone. And it is one nation and you are pure and you are dazzling because of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. And again, this is who you are right now in Christ, pure, made into a new nation, a new people group. Fourthly, you're God's own possession. Still in that first verse, Peter is again just rattling out who these people are, who we are. You're a people for his own possession. And I don't, it's hard for me to say this, I don't love the ESV translation here. I think the uh, the New King James Version does it a little bit better here because I think he's actually referring back to Deuteronomy 7. And when he talks about the people of his own, he's not just talking about a people that, that he owns or has, but it's, it's something that he treasures. Deuteronomy 7 said it several times that you are my chosen people who I treasure. And so I think the best translation, you are his own special treasured people. Okay, put this on your mirror tonight. God treasures you. Think of everything you own. Is there, I mean, is there anything in your life that is completely irreplaceable, a possession? And I was thinking, I mean, I don't have much that a lot of what I own that is most important is digital. All my sermons I have on a program called Evernote everything I've ever written, and to lose that would be pretty devastating. All of our family photos are on Google. To lose that would, would, not, would, not be, would not be good. But think of everything you own. What is your most special, most treasured possession? I mean, what, how, how do you regard whatever that is? How do you treat it? What do you think of? How do you view it? And now think, that's how God views you. You are his treasured possession. You are vitally important to the Father because of Jesus. Right now, you are his treasure. I mean, what a truth, what an amazing truth that we are deeply loved and adored by the Father because of Jesus. And I keep coming back to my high schoolers. When you hear this, high schoolers, middle schoolers, that your identity and your, your value and your worth, this is it. This is the foundation of your worth and your value, and it is nothing else. It's your not, not your ability to compete or to perform, to do well in a game, to, to be liked by people. None of that has any bearing on this truth about who you are in Jesus Christ. You are treasured for no other reason than the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And you, your performance doesn't matter. And moms, it's the same for you. And dads, it's not your work. It's not your kids being successful. Your people's perception of you, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change your value in the eyes of the Father. We'll keep going. Verse 
verse 10. You are God's people. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. So here, he's emphasizing the condition of who you were before Jesus Christ was your cornerstone, comparing it to where you are now. And it's similar to what we've been saying. You weren't a people before Christ. You weren't a people. We talked about last week. You, were, you, were, you weren't part of the temple that was being built. You were solo. You were orphans. You were all by yourself. You didn't have that community. Now, through Christ, you are God's people. Six, you're washed in God's mercy. Once you've not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Are you keeping up with all these? In in seminary, they teach you to do three-point sermons because people remember, they don't fall asleep. Well, okay. But here's the the thing. This is is the point of what Peter's doing. He's saying, you're you, you don't even know who you are in Christ. You, you can't even fathom or keep up with all that you are in Christ. He just keeps listing them out, trying to say that, that you are so much more than you even know. Look at the laundry list of who you are. And so, yes, not three points, a lot of points, but it is exactly what I think Peter is trying to do. You are so much more than you can imagine when you stand upon the cornerstone of Christ. You've been washed in God's mercy, meaning God withholds from you what you deserve. God withholds from you what you deserve. This is where the story of Rapunzel does not at all fit with our story because We know who we're supposed to be. We know how God made us. We know our background and our history, that God did all these things for us, unlike Rapunzel. Yet, we choose to stay in the tower. We choose to live our own lives our own ways. Yet, God gives mercy. And we don't deserve the love. We don't deserve the titles. We don't deserve anything that I've mentioned here before, yet in his mercy, he grants them to us. There's a quote, we're running out of time, from a book called Gently and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's a great great quote. I'm gonna read it anyway. That God is rich in mercy means that that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. Wow. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It's unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with. It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means on the day when we stand before him quietly, unheardly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. We are washed in right now, God's mercy washes over you when you stand on the cornerstone of Christ. Seventh, you're sojourners and exiles. We've been talking about this, that 
That this is essentially what Peter is saying. All these six statements. This is who you are in Christ. And when you are these things in Christ and you're living in a world that doesn't accept those, it's not going to go well for you. That, that you will be rejected like Jesus is rejected. You won't be received. You get what Jesus gets. And that the point is, this isn't, this isn't how it's always going to be. This isn't how it's supposed to be that this is temporary, that you're passing through, that this isn't your final destination. But these, when you are these, these six statements, it's, it doesn't jive with the world and the, the desires of the world. And all of this leads to, all of that, those seven statements, Peter, this is who you are. So that, that's the word in 1 Peter 2. So that, verse nine, three things he's gonna say that, in light of this truth, now do these things. Three things he's gonna tell them. Declare, abstain, conduct. Those are the three verbs that come right now, right next, verses nine through 12. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Wow. In light of who you are, Proclaim it. We talked about this last week with the spiritual sacrifices. The word proclaim is not used in the New Testament, any other places, but we find the, the Greek word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Psalm 71, 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. Proclaim the multifaceted magnificence and the excellencies of all that God is for you to make you those first six statements. In other words, and hear this, we live in a culture and we live in a world where people don't know who they are in Christ, who they can be in Christ. And what Peter is saying, speak to others about the truth of who they can be in Christ. Because we live in a world that is depressed and discouraged because they're not, they're not adding up, they're not living up to who they wanna be, and we have the truth. We have the truth of who God made people to be. And what Peter is saying, he's saying, proclaim it. Use your mouths, see the people who've misunderstood who they are and share the truth that God's grace and mercy are here for you. That he wants you to be royal and priestly, chosen, a new nation. The second verb that he uses, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So in light of the seven truths of who you are in Christ, fight the flesh that's still part of your life, the desires that wanna take you away from who you are in Christ, fight those desires. Trend towards these seven statements about who you are and abstain from things, from doing things, of following your desires to be who you're not. Say, so don't do it, is what Peter's saying. Abstain. 
Don't follow those worldly passions because that's not who you are. Follow the passions of the Father who made you all these things. So so be careful about the, the things that you follow, the feelings that you follow. And I love this because Peter is telling us to do something that is completely possible to do. So often I see people who are resigned to follow the passions of their sin. Well, it's just, it's just how God made me. I'm just, I'm envious or I'm jealous or I'm just an angry person or I just lust and I, I just struck, this is who I am. And, and it's like Peter is telling you, abstain. And he's telling you because it's possible in Christ on the cornerstone to follow, to abstain, to run, to not indulge in these passions that take us away from who we are in Christ. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. And you can, you can, through Christ, through the Spirit, you can say no to the things, to doing the things that you were not meant to do. The last one we'll talk about next week is conduct. Conduct yourselves in honorable ways, and then he'll continue in 1 Peter 2, surprisingly almost, very clearly lay out how our conduct is to line up with our new identity in Christ, and we'll talk about that last week. But this morning, I want to close with a hymn, so that the worship team's going to come out. And there's one hymn sung by Charles Wesley that I particularly love because I think what it does is it reminds us of exactly what we've said here this morning, that the key to to fighting your flesh, to proclaiming the excellencies, to conducting yourselves with honor, the key is knowing the rescue of Jesus and your new identity in him. And so this hymn does it. The fourth verse, which we'll sing, says this. The song is, how can it be? But here's the fourth verse. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. My, I saw the light. That's what it say. Wesley is recounting his salvation, that I was stuck in the prison of my sin, and then I saw a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that we were in prison, that we were chained by the the binding power of Satan and we've been set free to this new identity that we would proclaim his excellencies, that we would fight our fleshly desires and that we would conduct ourselves worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, help us to know who we are right now. We live in a culture and in a world where there are so many voices that speak to our value and to our worth and to our livelihood. 
And God, we pray that we would tune those out to the tune of your word. That we would not forget that who we are in Christ, these seven titles. And that God, once we recognize who we are, we can go and be and do what you've called us to do, to speak and to share the hope and the light of Jesus to all these people around us who are lost, who don't know who they are. And so God, we pray that you'd help us as we sing this song. May we think about the words, your amazing love, your amazing rescue. It's in your name we pray. Amen.